Uh, so yes, we're in the Song of Solomon. We're coming down to the home stretch. So just this week and next week. So chapter seven today, actually, chapter the end of chapter seven. I'm just going to look at two verses at the end of chapter seven, and then one verse in chapter eight today. And then next week, Jenny will take us through kind of that home stretch, chapter eight. Uh, and just to set chapter seven or this part of chapter seven that we just read up, I once heard that the story of God could uh, be described as a story set between two trees. Have you heard this? Maybe you've heard this. There was like a Rob Bell Numa video, if you remember those, way back, called Between the Two Trees. And you might even say it's set between two gardens. So it begins in the Garden of Eden. We all know this, Genesis 1 and 2. And in that garden, there's these two trees of significance, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. And, and that garden and those trees are emblematic of this place of rich abundance. It's fruitful, as well as intimacy, unbroken intimacy with God and with each other, right? There's perfection in that setting before Genesis 3 happens. And then uh, the story of God ends around a tree as well, in a, in a garden, so to speak. Uh, Revelation 21, we're given this picture of a future hope, the new Jerusalem, the city of God descending from heaven as a bride prepared for a husband. And the city has flowing through its center a river, and then on either side of that river is this tree, the tree of life, same tree as in Genesis 2, spanning both sides of the river. And it says in Revelation 21 that that tree provides fruit in this city to come, in this time to come for us as believers, uh, fruit in every season that, is, is, that will heal us. It's, the he, it's for healing of the nations. So some have called that the garden city of God. You have, so you have the garden of Eden, the garden city. And, uh, and in that garden city, God is going to banish death. That's the promise from Revelation 21. He's going to abolish warfare. He's going to uh, separate us from experiences of loneliness and darkness. It's pretty awesome, right? It's hard to believe. Now, here's something interesting. The route from that one garden, Garden of Eden, to the other garden, the Garden City of God, goes through, if you read the story of God, several very crucially important gardens. The the story of God is set in the midst of gardens. Uh, So you have the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14, where Jesus is said to have prayed with such anguish that he shed tears of blood, blood that is indicative of his future death just the next day. You have uh, Jesus' garden tomb, John 19. He's buried in a garden. <laughs> and, uh, and so much so that uh, when Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb to see him, remember who she first meets? The gardener. She's freaked out and she asks the gardener, some, to, some think this is God, <laughs> the Father, he, you know, what's going on? Did you steal the body? Uh, and then, you know, you go, as you read backwards in the story, uh, Psalm 1, my favorite psalm. Uh, I love this psalm. It's really just, it describes what it looks like to be a person devoted to and growing God. It's a garden psalm. You know, it blesses the man or woman who's, who's like a tree, right? Uh, and in one of Jesus' most seminal teachings, John 15, it's an entire metaphor on gardening. Vine, branches, that's us and Jesus. God, he's a gardener. <laughs> and so the Bible is just this book, you could say, uh, which, in which fertile gardens Abundant vegetation play a very central, if not uh, pivotal role. And, uh, and so the key here is, with respect to Song of Solomon, that, that located in this wondrous space between sort of uh, Eden and the New Jerusalem are these gardens of the Song of Songs. If you've been reading along with us, this imagery is throughout the entire book, gardens all over the place. And like I've said in previous weeks, these are gardens of human love, uh, places of seclusion, seduction, intimacy, security all those themes. And yet also, I would just argue that there are gardens that point back to Eden, always, as well as forward to the city of God. There's sort of this in-between space 
Like Rob Bell once said, we're living between the trees. We don't know where we're at in that timeline, but we know we're, we're headed toward a garden and we came from a garden. And these gardens in the Song of Songs are this in-between space meant to remind us of where we've come from and where we're going. And so having said that, today what I'd love to do with you is just consider three aspects of the garden in the Song of Songs, okay? It, it comes up in these last verses, uh, in 7 and 8, and, and, and kind of look, look at what the garden there reveals about the nature of human love as well as how this, this garden metaphor magnificently discloses uh, that God is involved in a redemptive process today. The God who created the heavens, the earth, the gardens, <laughs> the flowers, the trees is involved in the redemptive process today. We don't have to wait for this future garden city to come out of the sky to, to redeem us. God is involved today, and these garden metaphors in the Song of Solomon remind us of that, okay? So there's three, um, guess what? Three points to this sermon. So it's in your outline, uh, in the bulletin, if you've got a bulletin. And the first one we're going to look at, sort of these three ways in which the garden of the Song of Solomon disclose these two things to us. And the first is that the garden uh, demonstrates the character of God. Okay, so we're going to look at the character of God first. And this is in verses 11 and 12 of Song of Solomon, so I invite you to have that in front of you. I, you could even put it on the screen if you want, Jerfy, so that people have that there. I'll just read verse 11 and verse 12 again. This is the woman speaking to the man. Come, my love, let us go out to the fields and spend some, a night among the wildflowers. Okay? Uh, and then she says, verse 12, let us get up early, go to the vineyards, or go to the garden, you might say. See if the grapevines have budded. See if there's fruit on the vine yet. The blossoms have opened. The pomegranates have bloomed, okay? So you have two times in two verses where she says, let us go to the garden, okay? And which at a level is, like I've just said a, few, a moment ago, just a simple invitation to intimacy. The, the woman and the man are seen inviting each other out to their garden, right? And all the middle school boys laugh. You know, it's this invitation to sexual intimacy. It's, the, it's suggestive and sensual language. Like nobody, you don't need a, a theology degree to know that. And it's, it's, it's a language that's meant to evoke uh, kind of sensuality. So when you read about flowers opening and laying hold of fruits and budding of vines, right? Uh, it's important to note, this is not the biblical version of Better Homes and Gardening. Like, it's not Sunset Magazine. <laughs> this is something else. And uh, it, it really, just to say, on a very provocative level, the Bible is, is articulating quite explicitly, this is, there's a reason that churches have avoided this, like the plague, this book wasn't even allowed to be preached for generations because it's inviting us to explore sex and sexuality and sexual intimacy as a gift. I mean, like we, we have said, no, it's dirty. You don't talk about it, right? We have R-rated and X-rated movies for that kind of category, right? And, and God is saying, no, right here in my, my book to you, my love letter to you, sex is a gift. We are created as sexual beings, male and female. And the Bible is talking about that so explicitly uh, that, we're, that we're meant to share this in its proper context, I'll say, you know, as this, between in covenant marriage, to say that it's good. It's good. It's a good gift. <laughs> so why do we avoid it, okay? Uh, like every gift from God, it's good. So that, I mean, that's one reading, and we've been talking a little bit about that throughout the series. But I want to take a little detour. I know that we could talk, I could go here. Uh, I know John and Addie are probably thankful. I, they brought family, and like, I'm not going to go there explicitly. We'll do that sometime. But uh, there's another level I'd love to invite us to explore, right? Uh, and the Song of Psalms is not just about sexual intimacy, okay? It is about that, but, but it's vital for us to reflect upon the deeper level here. 
in the broader setting of this garden that they're in, okay? Uh, so if we, if we, what if we were to read this as an invitation from God to go to the garden of His love for us? An invitation to return to that place where both the male and the female in this story were created in love, for love, right? Uh, the place which all the gardens in the story of God point. The place where humanity first enjoyed intimacy with God, okay? What if we were to read it and reflect upon that place? How might that impact our lives, our intimate and non-intimate relationships, our faith? What if we did that? So I want to do that with you for a moment because I think it's powerful. So the woman may just as well be saying, let's go to Eden. Let's, let's, let's go back to Eden, my friend. Let's look at Eden. Let's reflect on who we are, whose we are, where we came from. And if you were to go to Eden, I mean, you don't need to go there because you know the story. Maybe you don't, but in the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2, even though we didn't read it this morning, uh, is every day of creation, when you see God creating something, day one, day two, day three, day four, if you just read through it, God creates as a singularity. So it says this. It says He created the stars. He created the moon. He created the sun. He created the vegetables. He created the fish. He created the birds. He created the animals. He created light. He created darkness. Just read through it. Every time God creates, it says He created until the very end of that story when He creates humanity. And only when it comes to humanity. Has this ever given you trouble? The pronouns completely change. Genesis 1.26, this is what God says. He goes from a singularity to plurality. Let us make humankind in our image and in our likeness. I mean, has that ever given you trouble? Like, why did it switch? Why, why didn't it just say that every day? Uh, you know, why doesn't God refer to us pluralists in every instance? What does it even mean for God to be an us instead of a, an I or a he? He's not a he, by the way, but to use that pronoun. Well, right away, I can hear somebody saying, well, it, of course it proves the doctrine of the Trinity, right? And then we have the clover, and the clover proves it also. And, you know, that's a great, that's a great Sunday school lesson. But uh, seriously, like, what does that even mean? I mean, I've heard that. I didn't grow up in the church, but what does that mean to have... Uh, bees love clovers, but, I mean, how does that prove anything to me? And it's, it's a nice sermon, nice benediction, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But it, does it have any meaning today to talk about God as a plurality? So what? Right? I'm, I'm good with Jesus. I don't need anything else. I'm good with the Father, Holy Spirit. Like, I don't need all that. Just doctrine. And I'll say it does have an impact on our lives, and here's how, okay? So when you go to the East... Eastern religions, Baha'i, Hinduism, Buddhism, okay? Uh, what you encounter is a variety of impersonal gods. You've heard this before. And the emphasis in, that, in those gods is, this deta- is on detachment. The, and the ultimate goal is solitary solace, okay? That's kind of my Wikipedia version of <laughs> Buddhism or Baha'i. I know there's more to those. but So, for example, in Buddhism... It's about overcoming your attachment and desire to things and to people and to outcomes and thus attaining, what? A higher sense of being, enlightenment. So that's Eastern religion. On the other hand, when you go to the West, particularly kind of this modern Western secularism that we live in, we're steeped in, instead of impersonal or depersonalized gods, you know what you find? Individual gods. Always individual. They're, they're very personal, not like the East, but they're, they're always individual. Uh, and here's, how, here's what I mean by that. Uh, Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors, he wrote about this once in this book called Eat This Book, A Conversation in the Art of Spiritual Reading. 
Talks about things like Lectio Divina and stuff in there. But here's what he said. This, I thought this was powerful. He says, we live in an age in which we've all been trained from the cradle to choose for ourselves what's best for us. And then he goes on, by the time we can hold a spoon or choose between, uh, excuse me, by the time we can hold a spoon, we choose between a half dozen cereals for breakfast, ranging from Cheerios to cornflakes, or if you're a Whole Foods fan, some sort of organic version of those. Our tastes, inclinations, and appetites are consulted endlessly. Uh, we are, we're soon deciding what clothes we'll wear, what style we'll have our hair cut, and then, then the options proliferate, what TV channels we're going to view, what courses we're going to take in school, what college we'll attend, what courses we'll sign up for, what model and make of car we'll drive, what church we're going to join. We, we call it church shopping. Isn't that weird? <laughs> and then he, then he goes on to say, if the culture does a thorough job on us, and it turns out it has been mighty effective on most of us, we enter adulthood with the working assumption that whatever we need and whatever we want and whatever we feel formed the divine control center of our lives. Isn't that interesting? He says, my needs, non-negotiable. My rights, defined individually. <laughs> my need or my desire for fulfillment, my expression, affirmation, sexual satisfaction is the foundation and the centrality of me. You might even just say that the, the new trinity of the 21st century is this, me, myself, and I. It's really about me. Uh, and so critically, what, what I think, and he's spot on, what I think he's pointing toward is that these impersonal gods of the East and these individual gods of the West that we often worship, that only the God revealed in creation uh, as a singular plurality, three persons inseparably bound as one, gives us an adequate understanding of what it means to live in community and in relationships. Only that God. Any other God's going to lead you down the wrong path. To paraphrase something uh, St. Augustine once said, the only true God is the God in community. Have you ever thought about that? The only true God is the God in community. God with a personal relationship at His very core, three in one, let us create them in our image. God has never been a singularity by Himself. He's always been a community. There's never been a time where God's been an individual. There's never been a time when God's been an impersonal force. God has always been a community of persons delighting in each other, loving each other, communicating with each other from the beginning of time and before we can even imagine the beginning of time. And because of this, with any other God, any other system of belief, love, personal relationship, community, it all comes later. It's all derivative. It's, it's secondary. It's nice. Work comes first, though. Success comes first, though. You know, me, my needs come first, though. And what God would say in Genesis 1, no, relationship and community is primary. It's who I am. The Trinity means per personal relationship. It's the meaning of reality. It's the meaning of existence. It's not a means to an end. It's the meaning of life. And what that means by implication for our lives is, is that love, relationships, sexuality, intimacy, all those things we're talking about are not derivative either. You don't get them later. They're principal. They're original. They're essential to who we are as people. In other words, we're made in the image of someone who's not just a me but an us, and therefore we're not going to be happy. We're not going to be fulfilled. We're not going to even know who we are as people if we just do that as me's. You know, if I come to church by myself, I leave by myself, if I go to work by myself with my, head, my headphones on, listen to my podcast and go home and eat my dinner, you're not going to know who you are because you were created for community. You were. You're creating the image, you're an, you're an image bearer. That's, this is what it means to be an image bearer. You're created in the image of a God who is three in one, inseparably bound. 
We are Christians, if you're a follower of Christ, little Christs. You reflect the image of God three in one. You are created for community, in community, by community. Now, here's something key, and this moves us to the second point I want to make here. It's never just community in general, okay? That's a great idea. We got a little postcard once. It's sitting on our fridge, and it's like community, and it's got all these things below. Have you seen that? Uh, It's community in specific or in particular. So this is point two. The garden declares God's intention for relationship, okay? So we're made for community, by community, for community. Uh, And then the garden declares God's intention for community. And this is the the verse from chapter 8 that I picked up on. So chapter 8, verse 13. Let me just read this. Uh, This is what the, the verse says. Oh, my darling, lingering in the gardens. There's the garden again. How wonderful that your companions can hear your voice. Let me hear it too. And so it's the final garden image in the Song of Solomon, and it's both powerful as well as a little confusing as I, as I kind of studied it. It's confusing because of the grammar, which I'll get to in a second. It's powerful because I think, again, it invites us to consider this wider scope of the garden imagery in the story of God, specifically because of what we see in this verse. We have this woman in the story uh, who is separated from her lover, her man, and he is yearning to be near her again, finally, right? And, and by the way, we've often read this very allegorically, so that, that would be Christ. He yearns to be near us, and yet somehow is separated from us. And so he says to her, let me hear your voice. And so this, this is where it gets confusing. You have the woman separated from her lover in the garden, let me hear your voice. And the companions come into the picture, <laughs> And now commentators are suggesting this is either the other women we've heard from them in this story, if you've read along, and, and, or a group of his friends who are aiding him in his search for her. It's, why are there companions? Like, why do they need, they, can't they just jump over the wall and see each other and there you're done? Uh, it's not that easy. Companionship, this is so key, companionship becomes the key concept, I think, in this final garden scene, and it's, it's so critical for us to reflect on what this word is about precisely because of what it means or the implications of it for how we build community, okay, in specific. So the word translated as companions, I'll just open this up for you, is this Hebrew word that's like a word picture. A lot of Hebrew, if you read it, they're just word pictures, okay, a lot of word pictures. We lose that in English. And this word picture literally is to be knit together or to be tied together as two cords. And it's the image of sort of from the world of weaving or sewing, Okay. And actually, it comes from this place in Exodus 26, when God is giving instructions to, for the, uh, the formation of the tabernacle. Tabernacle is just like a moving sanctuary, okay? It's a tent. And so God's saying, you've got to sew uh, the curtains, Exodus 26, couple them, companion them. So they're being told how to sew them together. There's 10 curtains, kind of sew down the seam, like I never took sewing, but I think that's how you do it. So sew down. So to couple the curtains to create this tent is, is to companion them. And I think it's a helpful image. I mean, you can picture the tent, right? Uh, the, like this sanctuary we're in, where it's erected, forms this place where fellowship can happen with each other and worship can happen before God. Uh, now imagine that room here, okay? We're, we're going through the desert. We've got our tabernacle, you know? What are the, and you're in the desert or you're in the Seattle rain, what are those curtains going to do if they're sewn well together? You know, we'd have waxed cotton here, right? 
or whatever the fabric would be. They're going to keep out the elements. When they're sewn well together, that, that knittedness and that wovenness is going to provide shelter from rain for us, dust, wind, heat for them. And I think it's also, by analogy, a, a picture of their union. What, remember Jesus' final prayer, John 17, and this John 15 piece? That they'd be one, united with me, vine branches, and with each other, unbroken, being woven into relationship. That's what this is all about. That's what it means to have companions. That's what the Song of Solomon's 8, uh, 813 verse is all about. It's, it's this famous passage from Ecclesiastes 4 gives us a great image of this. It picks up on a different word, but it says two are better than one. Try doing this alone. <laughs> two are better than one because you have good return for your labor. You can get more done together. Um, if either person falls down, one can help the other up. This is Ecclesiastes 4. If two lie down, they can keep warm, you know. You may be overpowered as one, but you two can defend themselves. And then this great verse, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. That's the idea. You're companions. And as you do life together, whether that's with friends, colleagues, your spouse, your children, whoever, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, you provide for each other a sense of solidarity and strength, uh, encouragement, as well as a source of joy. You get all that stuff from being with each other. Okay? You with me? Now here's where we run into difficulty. (laughs) Uh, Because when we think of companions, as people we're doing life with and we're close to and in relationship with friends, family, colleagues, especially fellow Christians, what do we often think of first? Commonality. People I have things in common with. People I'm alike, that are like me. Things we share. Uh, You know? And I'd like to suggest, I mean, though it's surely one way of understanding companionship, it's a, it's a misunderstanding of what the Bible means by companionship. So let's go back to the garden again, Garden of Eden, where God creates Adam and Eve. So yeah, Genesis 1.26, God creates them in his, or their image, <laughs> plurality. And then you skip forward to Genesis 2, and it says, the Lord says this, it's not good for man to be alone. So this is God saying that your core need is community. It's not good. It's the first not good in the Bible. Up until then, it's all been good. What's up with that? <laughs> Not good for you to be alone. What does God do? Second half of Genesis 2.18, God forms a woman for the man. And this is what it says. Genesis 2.18b, it's given us all kinds of trouble. I will make a helper fit, or in some translations, suitable for him. You know, if he takes Eve out of his rib and boom. So the question on the table is, what does it mean for us to cultivate companionship in relationship and it's right there. I'll make a helper fit for him. This verse, helper fit, that's what it means. And I'm going to unpack it. Uh, and it, it, again, this, this is a really misunderstood phrase. We've, we've used it in all the wrong ways. The word helper, let me just parse this for you, is this Hebrew word azer, okay? And it literally means to surround or protect, okay? So, and it's loaded, I think, because we think of helper in our culture, and, and, and we think of someone who uh, is assisting us on a task, we could do probably just as well without their help. Like we could ask my son, hey, can you help me take out the garbage? I could do that easier by myself. I watched my son and my daughter, or my son and my wife garden yesterday, and he made a real mess of our front yard garden. It was pretty, like, horrific, you know, like, <laughs> I went out, whoa, really whacked that one back, and, you know, he was helping. He had the hat on and everything. It was beautiful. 
But she could have done, well, Elizabeth's an amazing gardener. She could have done that better without his help. That's how we think of help. <laughs> but here's where we run into the problem when you apply it to men and women. Because this verse and then the surrounding narrative, we've often used this to reinforce things like complementarianism in the church, both within marriages as well as outside of marriage, where men are assigned primary headship. I could almost do this better without your help. We decision-making, ultimate authority, while women are just available to support and assist and help. Do you get what I'm saying? Uh, this has led to all kinds of issues in relationship and in, in communities like ours, not the least of which is this huge palatable power differential between men and women. Uh, it's led to emotional, spiritual, even physical abuse. Uh, and it's, ironically, I'll just say to the guys, led to a, 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 a real visible uh, degree of male passivity. Like, what's up with that? We just kind of disengage as guys because the women are helping with the coffee and with the Sunday school and with the Bible studies, we're making decisions. It's important stuff. Am I, am I on anybody right now? Because it's a thing. Uh, you know, so we have to watch this and be careful when we study this word that it was never meant to elevate, never meant to elevate men above women. That's not what Azer means. In fact, if you read the Bible, the word is almost always used to describe God. So, for example, when you, when you, God is Israel's Azer. God is a leader's Azer. Uh, and, and what God does is he brings, uh, in relationship to that nation or to, Israel, to the leader, strength into the relationship. Not because there's weakness inherent to that person or to the nation, but because alone the challenge facing that person, facing the nation, would be insurmountable. Again, going back, it's not good for man, man and woman, humanity, to be alone. Insurmountable challenges. So, for example, you know, Israel's after the, their defeat of the Philistines in 1 Samuel 7, Samuel sets up this stone. What does he call it? Remember? He calls it the Ebenezer. 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 <laughs> Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> I mean, he's trying to say, till now, this is what Samuel says about this stone, the Ebenezer. Till now the Lord has helped us, and he will continue to help us. In, in other words, Israel, uh, Israel, the Ebenezer is the stone of help. It's about God's strength prevailing over the Philistines, a, a, incredible opposition. All which is to say this, listen to this. The Azer in the story of God, who was God, but in Genesis is the woman. Adam's not the Azer. <laughs> the woman is the Azer. Is this figure filled with considerable, considerable strength and power? Do you hear that? Uh, I'll bring a helper into his life the Azer. Now think of that. God is bringing strength into Adam's life. Think about the impact of that on our understanding of help. I mean, what would, what would that, if we articulated that in relationship, how would have that impacted marriages for generations and young girls in our churches? Uh, if we recognized and encouraged in them their inherent strength, if we said <laughs> in companionship with them, you bring something into my life, I want to, actually, I want to challenge the men right now because I'm, I'm in your shoes. I have a daughter who's 12. You have close friends, significant others, spouses, uh, colleagues that you work with. I want to challenge you men. In your own words, per, perhaps don't say it exactly this way tomorrow morning or today, uh, but there's something in you, there's a God-given strength in you that I'm grateful for because you share it with me in relationship and I would be incapable of the task in front of me without you. 
Can you imagine saying that to your daughter? I'd be incapable of being your father without you, because you would. Or to your wife, I'd be incapable of raising these kids without you. You probably would. To your coworker, I'd be incapable of this project we're working on without you. And you would. Have you ever said something like that to a woman of significance in your life? And I think on Father's Day, I mean, this is, this is what Father's Day is about. It's a recognition and gratitude and affirmation of the women in our lives as men that we need each other. We need to express that. I know as a dad and a husband, you want to get all the affirmation. That's good. Hopefully you got a card today. But uh, man, just turn that around for a moment. God brings a helper to Adam as a companion, a source of deep strength for him, okay? But not just any helper. Here's where it gets really interesting. She's a helper fit. And this word fit, like I said, suitable in some translations, you couple that with helper, and again, it's just, we screw it up. There's complementarianism again, like a helper fit, right? Uh, But interestingly, this is a word picture as well, just like before. And the word picture literally means like opposite, and that's why they don't translate it that way. He creates a like opposite, because you look at that and you go, what's that? Like, what does that mean? (laughs) That's That's a weird contradiction of terms. Uh, ironically, Tim Keller, he's a pastor at a church in New York City that doesn't redeem women, so I'm not going to go down that path. But ironically, he, I think, has the best um, definition or articulation of what this word means. And here's what he says, and he has a book on marriage, and he says that, that, that the like-opposite word, the fit word, it means that Adam and Eve are like two pieces of a puzzle that fit together because they're not exactly alike, nor are they randomly different, They're differentiated in such a way that they create a complete whole or a picture. If you imagine a puzzle, you put all the pieces together the right way, what do you get? A picture. And that's what he's saying, that God forms a picture in their life together. If you think of this on a broader scale, God is forming a picture using our relationships together, not just uh, intimate relationships, husband to wife, but parents with their kids, or when I hang out in the Sunday school with those kids, or when I have friends that I hang out with. Our friendships, intimate, non-intimate, in community, God does this not by creating a clone of Adam, another Adam, but an Eve, a woman. Not a man, but a woman. Uh, instead of, a, it's, he creates a like opposite, someone who's not exactly the same nor randomly different, but somebody who's marvelously and mysteriously different than Adam. And yet also somebody who it brings this sort of, oh gosh, uh, I don't want to use the word compliment because I just... I said complementarianism is bad. What would be a better word? Uh, you know what I'm saying. Okay, I'm not going to try. I just lost my train of thought there. She's a profound source of strength. She's different. She's going to stretch Adam because of that difference. But she's also going to, because of the, the way she's like him, she struggles. She's a woman. All, all the women in here struggle. Every person struggles. She's going to be a source of his growth and his transformation and a deeper source of faith, because she's going to say, let's go through this together. As the proverb says, I just imagine this as Adam and Eve hearing this, like iron sharpening iron. (laughs) So they develop each other's character in their faith. Uh, So this is all to say that the differences between us, not just male-female, they go beyond gender. It's racial, sexual orientation, theological, and political. This is a big one today. Our political differences and those kinds of generational differences, uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, millennials, 
we have a few people who are in other generations. I'm Gen X. We got some boomers. And as we live in community, the, the key here is, is that as we, as we are like opposites, it would be great if we had even more people from that boomer generation. We, we bring a, a sense of strength as well as in that difference, a sense of our calling and community to each other. So here's the application. I should say like an exhortation I want to give you. Our, and I mean all y'all, okay, men and women, okay, married and single, gay, straight, the very young, though most of them left the room, there's a few left, and the very old, our deepest relational needs will only ever be met by finding people different from us and befriending people different from us. That's the only way you understand companionship, at least biblically. It's not about sameness. It's not about homogeneity. Companionship is about establishing relationships of significant difference. You and I need to find and befriend people and companion people who are, are racially different than us, politically different than us, in, in a different gender than us, different sexual orientation, different theological understanding. And that's the only way we're going to understand the character of God, but also God's intention for our relationships. We're built for relationships of significant difference, okay? So here's my question for you. Do you have anybody in your life who is significantly different than you? Racially, politically, theologically, anyone. Just think for a moment. Just go through your Rolodex. That's a thing that they used to have on the desk with the, you remember those? So think through that for a moment. Who do I know? Who's in my contact list? Who are my Facebook friends? Am I only ever seeing stuff about how bad this guy is or how bad this guy is? Or do I see a variety of things? That will tell you a lot about who your friends are. Now, is the, if there is somebody who's like opposite you, mysteriously different, marvelously unique, just like I asked the men to do with the women, have you ever shared with that person what kind of impact they're having on your life? Just look them in the eye and say, you, because you're my friend, are, are changing me. And you're, you're revealing to me who God is. And you're shaping my character and my faith. And I thank God for you. Have you ever done that? And if you don't have somebody like that in your life, why? Why is that? Why, why don't you have... So, if, you're, if you're going through that Rolodex, I know it's a probing question. Why don't you have anybody different than you in your life? Are you scared? Are you isolated? Uh, can we help you? <laughs> because that's God's goal for us, that we would be invested in and committed people, to people different than ourselves. And that's how we'll understand community and companionship, okay? So that's number two, that the garden is declaring to us God's intention for relationship, okay? Here's the last thing I want to say this morning, and then we'll, we'll respond by worshiping again. The garden, it hints at God's future, ultimate future. And I've kind of talked about this in the introduction. Let me kind of tie it all together. This is back in chapter 7, verse 13. So the woman, she makes this beautiful declaration and invitation to the man, let us go out to our vineyard. And, and there I'm going to give you my love, okay? And, and there the mandrakes, they give off their fragrance. And the finest fruits are at our door, and new delights as well as old, which I've saved up for you, my lover. Now, what's, I mean, what's this all about, right? It's, just, it's like there's a lot there. And on a literal level, it's, it's very erotic. The, the mandrake was known throughout the ancient Near East uh, by its, for its power, if you were to eat it, as an aphrodisiac. So there's that. That's the imagery of fruit that's hanging above their door. 
And, and so, you know, you're immediately reminded of a song of Solomon 5, this double entendres of the dream that they're having or she's having. Uh, and so there's that. That's one interpretation. Take it a step further, though, like I said earlier. Widen the lens. Uh, allow your mindset to shift to this garden again, the actual garden setting, okay? How might that color your interpretation? I'll say when you do that, when you allow yourself to be transported by this verse, this imagery, mandrakes, the door, the new delights as well as the old, are, are, are vast and profound. New delights as well as old, I've saved for you my love. In the garden of our delight, just think where that takes you. I mean, interestingly, uh, where the woman says, I've saved up new delights as well as old for you, this is what's called a Hebrew mirrorism, okay? And uh, a mirrorism is just this linguistic device that's used especially in poetry uh, to express the totality of something in an abbreviated form. Uh, so, for example, a well-known one in the Psalms, this declaration in Psalm 103, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. This is a mirrorism, heavens and earth, east from west, that, that's meant to express the vastness of God's love as well as the boundlessness of God's grace. You can't measure it. That's what Psalm 103 is trying to tell you. Another one, though it's in the New Testament, is Jesus' self-declaration in Revelation 1. Remember what he says about himself? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And there Jesus is, is expressing to us that he is the one who's prior to, active in, and the consummation of creation and redemption. The beginning and the end. I was there in the beginning. I'll be there at the end. I'm the, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first letter and the last letter of the, of the Greek alphabet. Nothing, he's saying, lies outside my sovereign vision uh, my plan and my power. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. So this, the mirrorism in Song of Solomon 7, expressed in new as well as old things, is intended to communicate that the woman in our story has stored up and treasured everything near and dear to her for her lover. Or put more simply, she, she intends to give him all things. You can imagine like her little her trunk all things in my life I give to you. And, and, and here's how this hints at God's ultimate future. It, it's the garden, but this time it's not the Garden of Eden. We're being, we're being thrust forward to the New Jerusalem. In other words, it's this subtle and yet significant hint of what God promises in Revelation. I'm going to read this because I just want it to be in your, in your mind as we're concluding today. This is what God says about the new heavens and new earth. A vision. A new heaven, a new earth, Revelation 21.1. The first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And then I saw the holy city as the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among people, and He'll dwell with them for eternity. And they will be His people, and God will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be more, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And then listen to this from Jesus, the, the, the words of Jesus here. He who is seated on the throne says this, I am making everything new. <laughs> everything. Both new or old as well as new things. Everything new. Which practically speaking in our relationships today, this is what this means for you. If you're in a relationship, presumably you are. 
any kind of relationship, whatever's happening, whether that's inside of a marriage where your intimacy has grown very stale, your expectations have been completely broken, you're facing a change in your career, possibly a move to another city and, a, and finding a new community, you're facing a health crisis, you're facing whatever you're facing, uh, you're facing stress in your working relationships, you've got a horrible boss, <laughs> or your friendships, you know, they've, they've kind of gone sideways. You're feeling anxiety and, about the, and turmoil about our political system and the future that you're, you're, you're sending your kids into today. Uh, the, this world is not easy. <laughs> so hear this word. You, you, maybe you hear this word about forming relationships of significant difference, and you're like, I feel inadequate right now, Jack. Thank you for that. Thanks for that great word today. <laughs> know this. Here's the, here's the application. New as well as old things is a profound promise that this, whatever this is for you, is not the end of the story. It's not the end. There is another garden coming, and that garden is a place of reconciliation and renewal. Cosmically, no war, no death, no darkness, as well as today, in this moment, relationally, interpersonally, no more bitterness. You're in the garden. Garden of God's delight for you. No more fear. You're beloved. There's no more shame. No more cynicism. I invite you in, Jesus says, to be with me. There's a day uh, we're living between the gardens of our creation and our redemption. And in that place, our task today, this is your task. Would you do it with me? Open your hands up and just acknowledge God. We just acknowledge God as sovereign and declare to our hearts, uh, if you'll just pray with me, nothing God lies outside of your sovereign vision, power, and plan for our lives. Nothing, God. You make all things new. This is what Revelation tells us. We confess to you now, God. I just want to invite you to pray. I want to invite worship leaders up. We confess to you, God. Hands up if you'll be willing to do this. God, there are things in our lives over which you are not sovereign yet, that we are attempting control manage and fix and figure out and do. God, our task today in light of this promise and new delights as well as old stored up for us, our task today is to declare your sovereignty over our lives. All things are yours, God. You hold our lives and you promise to redeem our lives. Friends, I don't know if you've been praying, but will that be your prayer this morning? Let me just pray over you. God, we thank you that in the garden of your delight over us, which is promised today, this is not pie in the sky by and by. You bring us new delights as well as old, all things made new. And so, God, I pray over my friends here as we gathered this morning. I pray over marriages. Uh, I, I pray this promise that you'll bring healing, all things made new, all things. God, I pray over our bodies and our health that all things will be made new. You are working in us and through us. God, I pray over our community and the friendships you're forming, but also where there's been misunderstanding and hurt, where there's been loneliness, where people have felt isolated. I pray against those things. I pray for deep connection, God. All things made new. God, I pray for our city. <laughs> Thank you that we live in such a beautiful and abundant city, but we know, God, there are people in this city that are in pain and that are suffering, people around this block. And we, we just declare your sovereignty in their lives. You have a plan and a promise and power in their lives. Thank you, God. All things new.
And so as we respond this morning, Lord, will you allow our hearts to declare that in worship? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.